Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Good morning. Welcome to a ser- a new series called Inside the Game. This is the first episode of it and I'm delighted to say I am joined by Andy McGregor and Tim Keats from Market Insights. Good morning men. Good morning Baz. How are we? Good morning. Yeah all is all is well we're both we're all Evertonians so a win was a win was a, a rare treat at the <laughs> weekend. It certainly so. was it certainly was. Uh, let's get into it this is obviously um, data in football is something that has obviously grown more and more. Certainly recently, people have... I feel like people are getting more on board with it. There's still... Obviously, you'll still get naysayers, but I feel as though the general public I'm talking about, not in, not in terms of being inside football, but I think the general public are coming to terms with, with more and more of this kind of um, data being used. I first became aware of it uh, when Brentford started doing it, I think back in... 2012, 2013, and I, rem- I can remember there was quite a um, sceptical piece of reporting around it that this this fella who had um, was involved in betting kind of had this algorithm and he wanted to implement it at Brentford and they're going to use that algorithm to recruit players and people were kind of laughing at it. But anyone who'd anyone who'd watched. Moneyball, I guess, was a uh, would have would have kind of said, well, maybe, maybe it can work. So what? I mean, Tim, let's start with you. Data in football. When when did you start equating the two could work together? I think, um, yeah, I think being an Evertonian, it was uh, it was probably around the time where uh, I saw that Leighton Baines was. Uh, I think I I read some things about Leighton Baines and how he was uh, assisting all these goals. And we'd always had kind of goals and assists for quite a long time in things mm. like fantasy leagues and things. People have been yeah. using those for, for quite a few years. But then I think I first became aware that I think Baines had this season where he was brilliant to the, to the naked eye. You could watch him every game, but I think he'd only got like two or three assists. Mm. And I was thinking like there must be a way to kind of measure that 
he is still creating these chances, even though the goals aren't being scored. So I started to to look, and there are a few a few websites started to come up um, at the time um, that had yeah some stats on performance stats and things that, that were starting to creep in, and that must have been around yeah 2012, 2013. Mm. Um, and then I think probably I got became became radicalized into it by uh, some other people who were producing some really interesting things about the signings Everton were making probably at the time. And uh, they seem to be really good at predicting who would and who wouldn't work out mm. um, just based on what they'd done at previous clubs and the roles they played. And I went from being kind of optimistic about every signing to, to cynical. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think I was probably right. <laughs> right to be cynical around some of the recruitment yeah. like five, five, ten years ago. So, yeah, it was, just, it was just finding out that, yeah, there was this information that was being put out there um, and wondering if you could go into it in any more depth. And then, yeah, there was a, a guy... Paul Riley, who's uh, really was big on data on the Everton forums a, f- a few years ago, and he started producing some really interesting work. So I got to know him. I got to know a few other people in the industry. And uh, yeah, we we really, I think Andy and I first kind of bonded over around whether Gilfie Sigerson was a good signing <laughs> and uh, things along those lines. So uh, we uh, we suddenly, yeah, I found a, a small network of people who were probably a, yeah, a bit geeky in terms of football and uh and wanted to look at a bit below the kind of surface depth about yeah whether he'd scored scored goals to whether it was actually he was the right fit for the right the club at the time and so on so yeah nice. I think that's where Andy and I first met was talking about that type of thing on on Twitter and uh, yeah went from there really Andy you I mean the, as Tim saying there the whilst that the whilst the we always talk about now and I think it's in post like Pienaar and his pre-assists or Baines because them <clears> two were <throat> fabulous at it weren't they and people would. Like Tim's just said, you'd look at the, you'd look after the game, and it'd be, don't know, Baines got the assisting, like oh, Pina done all the work though, mm. and, and that kind of thing. And obviously, like Tim just said, me and you, me and you bonded on Twitter, didn't we, over over certain things. But when first of all, when when did you kind of start getting into that data side of it, and then yeah. obviously take it from there. Much much later, really. Mm. I think than the most. I think I. I you know, up until I'd say about 2017, I guess I was probably a, a regular, well, early 2017, I was a regular football fan, really, in mm. terms of uh, the way I viewed football, the way the way I looked at it. Um, and then I've always been interested in data and statistics. I, I like baseball, I like basketball, I like a lot of American sports. I've always yeah. been interested in them. And I started to start reading, similar to yourselves, about you know, Brentford and, and about other clubs, and obviously Liverpool had started to use it under mm-hmm. Camo Uh but and then I've obviously continued under Michael Edwards and the Red Sox influence on that. And really, I just started looking into it, really, in the sense of what, what, what did I, my perception of things were and what you know the data was. And sometimes my perception was correct. For example, I always thought that Ross Barkley was an extremely creative player in open play, and the data bore out that Ross Barkley was. And I always valued Ross Barkley's contribution to Evan, probably as well as due to data, but also because I liked him as a player as well. Mm. But then, like as you say, you know, I think, interestingly about Leighton Baines, I think if it was nowadays with the way Twitter's used to highlight players, you know, obviously there's a lot of use of data and visualisation, yeah. you know. I think Leighton Baines would be viewed in a completely different way than he is. I think a lot of people appreciate Leighton Baines uh, when he was playing, but I think now people will be talking about him. I think of those seasons just before the, the, the end of the Moyes era mm. and the first Martinez sort of seasons, he was incredible, like really unbelievable for a left back. Like the, you know, in terms of European, in terms of creating chances, he was up there with the best players in Europe. So I think, unfortunately for like maybe this, you know, this revolution in time, well, good for Everton because he probably would have been sold. I was going to say they've been you know, sold a bit of now, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a different time because that, 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 that awareness of how good he was, I think everyone knew he was good, mm. but obviously I think that, that extra layer of you know, contextualisation would be, you know, it would added on top, would show how good he was. So no, but no, it would have been on 2017 for me in terms of looking at data and I started, you know, blogging, speaking to people like Tim. And yes, I, I remember a piece by uh, Luke O'Farrell. I always bring, come back to this piece about uh, Giffy Sigurdsson again, replacing um, Ross Barkley. Mm-hmm. He used data at the time to show why that wasn't, why I wasn't a good fit and uh, sort of come in line with my thinking as well. So overall, that's where I started in terms of data. Yeah, my, my eyes sold me that. Gilfie Sigurdsson wasn't the right replacement for Ross Barkley. Uh, and then I've seen stats and stats kind of... But some of the stats, I remember, I, just before we go on, I just remember Sky Sports using the thing and saying, oh, he scored the most goals outside of the top four, whatever. The, he's created this many, you know, this many assists, this many chances. And you start going, oh, maybe I'm not, I've not seen it. it. It didn't take me long to realise I was right. As good as a, as good a contribution as he did make at times, because he scored, a, he did score a lot of goals from certainly nowadays for us from midfield. But he just to me, what we were losing something totally different than what Gilfie Sigurdsson was going to give us. We were losing someone who'd get the ball and travel up the pitch with it and and drive at yeah. people. And that as good as Gilfie was at other things, he wasn't that kind of player, was he? But anyway, yeah. that's enough, Everton. Uh, Tim, so when did when did market insights begin? Then, Tim, obviously you've just you've just talked about the introduction to data. What what piqued your interest? Having conversations with people like Andy and other people, um, and Luke O'Farrell is a name that I'd forgotten, but I remember reading a lot of his stuff as well back in the day. Um, so how did how did market insights come about for you? Did you see it? Did you see a gap, or, or was it really that nerdy side of you, like you just said, which which really took over? Yeah, I see. I was working just normal jobs. I had a, a consultancy, like business analysis <laughs> consultancy, and I was working on contract jobs. And I had a, a two or three month gap where one contract finished and the other one hadn't started. So kids had just gone to school both full time. So I was in the house on my own all day. And I was just like, I'll just write about football. Um, I'd always enjoyed it. And I thought, actually, I've now got time to sit down and uh, and fill the hours doing that. Um, so I started writing about it. And very quickly, I got kind of picked up by people at clubs who had messaged me and asked questions. And after a while, I thought, well, if people from clubs are reaching out and, and asking my opinion on things, I might as well um, get together with a few other people I've met. So there's a guy, Ram, who's a data guy, who's an absolute genius. And he he had built these systems that took data and turned them into really nice visualizations. And then Matt and Kevin, um, who also were producing really good work at the time. So the four of us initially got together and said, well, we've got, we've got a month left of uh, me being off work. And they were uh, kind of like early, much younger than me, early in their careers. Um, and yeah, just finishing university and stuff. So I was like, why don't we just put everything we we think together into one document and and send it to a club and see if we get any any interest so mm-hmm. we uh literally it was as simple as like Swansea City had mentioned that they wanted to modernize their recruitment department after they got relegated um and Graham Potter had just uh just left and they were appointing a new manager and they were restructuring the entire kind of back end of the club so like okay Swansea that'll do so uh, we effectively put together like a 50 or 60 page document saying what we'd, we'd do if we worked for them mm. and uh, sent it off. Didn't hear anything, didn't expect to really. Um, almost was almost about to start the new work when we got a, uh, 
a, phone, a message, an email through from the new head of recruitment, Andy Scott, um, who is at Forest now. Um, and he sent us a message just saying, really read your document, really liked it. Let's meet up. So um, me and Matt traveled down to a, a service station off the M25 and uh, and sat with him uh, for a couple of hours. And at the in that evening, he phoned and said, yes, let's give it a go. So uh, the four of us started. And then within a couple of weeks, um, they said all the scouts had, had left um, since the, the change of manager. And people tend to do that in football. You follow around the people you work with. Yeah. Um, so they had they had nothing in place. So I said, I know two guys, Andy and uh, Jay, who I said were really good. They were the best kind of people on on Twitter at the time at, at knowing players and at rating players. So I said, let's get them involved. So they agreed and they they paid us to um, bring Andy and Jay into to market insights. Um, so yeah, we've since then three years um, full time work for for five people now, um, and about another five consultants working with us. So, yeah, it's been a kind of unex- an unexpected, unplanned journey into working full-time in football. But, yeah, it's gone really well so far. That's, I mean, that's fantastic. And I love I love stories like that anyway. <laughs> I, I do. Andy will tell you that. I do. I love, I love people who can see something and, and they enjoy it and they go after it and they make a go over it. It's the, uh, to me, that's that's just that's perfect, isn't it? It's something you enjoy. You can, you know, there is that thing. Uh, although sometimes, you know, being an Evertonian and doing what I do, I do question it. But if you if you lo- if you love your job, you don't work a day in your life and all that that, that thing. But there will be. I'm quite sure you've had a lot of stressful days doing it as well. But on the whole, it's a game we all love, isn't it? And to be involved in it is fantastic. Uh, Andy, I. I can remember having discussions with you on Twitter over some players, and it was as simple as uh, come in, come in the studio. Then let's do a show together, and and we've had our friendship since then, and we've had we've had yeah. many many a chat over players face to face and on Twitter, and at one o'clock in the morning. But for you, I mean, <laughs> yeah, um, for you getting involved in that, obviously, like Tim has said, you were doing a lot of really detailed player reports and stuff things like that so when that opportunity come about with him were you did you were you just a case of jump at it because this is what i really want to get into well tim's gonna like this so so at the time i was doing work for an agency i was still 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 friends with the, the agents was working with them mm. um he's been a big big help big help to me since i started i um i, I started, basically i was doing a lot of reports on twitter about a lot of europe different european players yeah. And you know, at the, at the time, I wasn't. Uh, I, I I didn't want to do the job I was doing anymore. I've been working in financial consultant for uh, ten years, and I wasn't enjoying it anymore. So I left, and I was sort of looking around at what to do. You know, looking what to do sort of next. Yeah. Started because, and I also felt that in, in my personal life that I didn't have. I wasn't able to have the conversations I wanted to have about football. My friends, my friends were interested in football and a, le- on a, on a level the same as me. Not that everyone is. People have got different levels of interest in football, of course. Mm. But mine was a deep analytical thinking level of football. So I wanted to sort of branch out. So that's why I started the El Pavotti football blog. And yeah, and people started to notice. So I did, you know, different scout reports, you know, highlighted players in South America, 
uh, by watching tour by watching tournaments. I you know invested in myself by you know buying a White Scout account and mm. using the, the you know the five hundred minutes I had from there a month to try and find players, which is not not easy. And I even used you know like Tim said those websites that are, those websites that have been around, such as you know who scored and understat to try and find those those next players. And I, and I think I did quite you know quite well at the time. And then I joined the agency. I spent some summer learning about mandates, which is whereby clubs or players from abroad give play, give agencies in the UK the mandate to sell them to clubs here. Uh, so we were looking for players that we could sort of sell to Premier League clubs. And then Tim come along uh, was telling me that he'd, he'd got an offer from Swansea City. And obviously, <clears throat> me and Tim had a friendly rivalry, of course, because that's, that's the way we worked about French League players. And I was very, very jealous of Tim getting that, that the Swansea thing. So you know, I was agreeing with Envy. And then he comes to me a couple of weeks later and said, you know, we'd like to take you on. I was obviously over the moon because, you know, I, I already knew him, Ram and Matt, and I didn't really know Kevin and, and Jay that well, but I certainly, you know, spoke to them on Twitter. So, no, it all came together really well. And as you say, it's been a, a wonderful ride so far and I can't, can't you know, have a self thankful I am to them all for taking me on. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, that is, what a story. That is brilliant, isn't it? Brilliant that something you love, something you want to do. Both of you at the right time and kind of in your career that, Listen, and that's sometimes how it is, isn't it? Call it serendipitous, call it fate, call it the stars aligning, however you want to dress it up. Call it luck. Uh, however, right place, right time. Once once that happens, you know, it, it's almost perfect for you to fall into it and then to make it grow. And that's exactly what you're doing. And obviously, I speak to Andy quite a lot, so I know that it's going really, really well. well. Yeah, well, <laughs> I apologise for that, mate, but, you know, you, you've been the same. Don't, it's not all one way. Don't start all that. Yours is <laughs> yours is nine o'clock in the morning when I'm I'm doing fifteen things. Um, yeah. Can you? We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tim, so we're, obviously that's, you know, Swansea came up. You got involved with that. So how did, how did that work? How was that with your first club and trying to impress them? And, and what, you know, what did you have to do? Like, what's, what's the first thing you do when... When that happens, you know, it's great then saying, oh, we like your presentation. Everything's great before you do it, isn't it? It's that yeah. thing of, like, preparation is <laughs> perfect. You buy into it. Look look what I'm going to do for you. Now I've got to deliver. Yeah. You know, it's like the signing. Every new signing's exciting, isn't it? They've got the shirt and you're like, Neil exactly. Pie will get 30 goals for Evan. Um, but how how do you, you know, <laughs> what do you do when when the contract's signed and let, we've got to go to work? So what what can you talk us through what that was like? Yes, yeah, so um, the club at the time was was in a situation where they they had been relegated from the Premier League. They still had a hangover of quite a few high value contracts from yeah. 
from that time. So it was it wasn't a club you're going to go into and they've they've got millions of pounds to spend. Mm. It was one where we were having to look at the structure of the club. So they had hired Steve Cooper then as the, the head coach who was who'd only previously worked with England youth teams and mm. in Liverpool's uh reserve and youth teams. Yeah. Um so we kind of we looked at it that with Andy, this wasn't just us, of course, it was the whole club, but Andy would say, like, what can we do to make this, what can we do to maximise the quality of players we have on the pitch? So we quickly kind of felt that using Steve's ability to work with young players was was going to be the right way to go and and using his contacts within the, the FA and within the kind of youth systems of, of the big clubs. So they brought in uh, Mark Gray, um, Ryan Brewster, Connor Gallagher, and players like that who'd worked with with the England youth teams um, all did really well and kind of filled that gap where they were getting rid of the expensive contracts and and uh, bringing in the uh, kind of, yeah, bringing yeah. the wage bill down to a sustainable level. Um, what, what we did in the background as well is try and build up a scouting database so that when there was money to spend or, or they in the future had the ability to spend money, we would at least be on top of all the players with, with reports logged in their scouting system. So they, like most clubs, have a, a paid-for scouting system, which we would file reports in for them. And, yeah, we literally probably put hundreds of reports over over the nine or ten months that we, we were there on the contract um, with, with Swansea to do. So, yeah, we built up a huge scouting database with them. Um, and, and the way that works is generally you're watching video and you're filling in um, almost like a each player's attributes and you give them a rating on a system and then that gives you a total point score for the player. And I think that's probably industry standard to do things along those lines. Mm. Sometimes it's letter grades, sometimes it's numbers. But yeah. at the end of the day, you're watching players, you're looking at the attributes, trying to find the ones who best fit the club. And yeah, I'd say with, with Swansea, I think we were probably, um, we were very enthusiastic and uh, we were probably a bit naive at the time about the reality of where clubs would shop for players. Um the majority of transfers are domestic um, in the UK. The vast majority are domestic. So it's it's great that on Twitter we were saying, oh, this 18-year-old in Slovenia is brilliant. But the reality is most clubs won't touch him. Um, no. You're far better looking at the 26-year-old playing in, in the championship who's, who's consistent and is already at that level and is proven. Mm. So I think, yeah, we, we went into it with a bit of naivety, but a lot of enthusiasm. And uh, I think the work was definitely appreciated. And uh, yeah, from there other clubs because Swansea were kind enough to let us publicize the fact they're taking us on yeah. other clubs picked it up and yeah we we, we ended up with some uh, a quite a wide client base not just in the UK but like around the world um and yeah the, the process is is always fairly similar regardless of the level it's like use data to find the interesting players watch them find the best match for the club you're working for and really like go into that that granular detail like Andy was talking about the levels of levels of it you can't just say he's a good good striker like what's he do specifically and how's that fit in with like how you create chances mm. and all that that level of uh information that that probably fans to a certain extent don't care about you just want the goal to be scored but mm. if you're spending millions of pounds on a player's contract it's got to be the best match of the available players so yeah we we had a chance for andy to to go into the, the geeky uh super detailed granular stuff so yeah that's that's basically why I'd say most clubs operate like, um, and certainly, I think there's there's ways you can make it run efficiently and effectively. But at the end of the day, it's always a combination of data and, and video and 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 a bit of live scouting at the end of the process. But I mean, Andy will tell you that 
me with my strikers, I I look at everything with strikers. The other, not so much the others. He, he'll have me off with midfielders, defenders, and all that. But he's not pulling. <laughs> he's never. He's not pulled the wool over my eyes with forwards because that I, that was the position I played. I love it, and I look at everything. And it, it, you're absolutely right. Just because someone knocks some goal, clocks some goals, it, it's what else they can do. And I guess that's where data comes in. Andy, what you know, obviously Tim's just said there. It's that was Swansea. That was the that was the first you know your first broke your duck with Swansea, and it's grown since then. Um, because obviously because you've done good work, things like that don't grow unless you're doing good work. So how how is it been for you in terms of managing? Like how would you go from say a, a Swansea level side to say a, a League Two side who's are there, are there needs different? I'm quite sure budget wise the difference and and maybe level of players. So how do you how do you factor that in when you're looking for players? Well, that's the, the, yeah. So we do have a, a range of different clients across the different levels. Like we you know we saw we worked with Swans the other time. It was a mm. it was a good championship side. They yeah. you know, made the playoffs under Steve Cooper. They were certainly a good side. And you know you know we've all, we've we've done work with you know with with league two sides in different capacities. Mm. Obviously, we're probably most known you know in, in I guess in, in UK circles for our work in League One in terms of our work with Plymouth. Argyle and NMK Dons, and I guess the, the, you know with, with maybe some other big clubs that I won't mention because obviously client confidentiality. Our role is different between the two. So with our, some of our bigger clients, we're probably on the you know at the, at the on the outside of the process, contributing in terms of in terms of names and and different projects that we can we can help the club with. With uh, people like a Plymouth or a you know an MK Dons, we're, we're involved in the process all round in, in every way. We're speaking to I speak to the, the, the head of recruitment, Jimmy Dickinson, at, at Plymouth every single day about different players. We do projects for them every single day. I speak to Neil Dusnip, who's the, the technical director. So it's every different every different project that we undertake has as different elements. Uh, obviously, at the core of it, you know, with, with, certainly with with my my work with clubs, it is generally recruitment that is my spe- speciality in terms of helping players. And, and you're right there; it is different. You know, horses for courses, as I always say. You have you know different players for different levels, and that that's you know, I, I when I first started on Twitter, I was fairly European and South America and Japan or wherever I could find players because that's where I find it exciting. And I had to sort of adapt to the EFL and the level between League One, League Two, Championship, even though they're really separated by a league, you know, one league difference, is vastly different. So that, that involved a lot of watching for me uh, in terms of what was required in those leagues, understanding the levels, understanding the level of physicality. How you know quick the game is, the, the level, you know, the level of players that you need to find. So that's not just data, because again, data can help you to identify good players at EFL level. But there's a lot of contextualization about watching players, the physical attributes that you need for teams. So with with the teams that we work with, you know, at the EFL level, it's it's a, a lot of it is is you know is watching as well as using data, and they marry together. As Tim said, the process for me is always use data to identify. You then had that context around level, physical attributes, uh, technical ability within that you're watching. And then obviously, as Tim said, again, the evidence and on the end, you have to evidence why that player fits that club. And, we, you know, we've had some good success with those League One clubs. So, yeah, it's, it's gone, gone well in terms of that. I think, as I always say to people about football, watch football at every different level you can because... It, it, you know, obviously, I grew up watching Everton in the Premier League. You know, that's the highest level of football you can get. It's vastly different at League One. You know, you can't expect players to do the same things. It can be quite frustrating. But you know, you know that that is how you improve. You understand different levels, and obviously, again, when you understand the levels, it makes it easier for you to make judgments on players because you can say 
well, that player is not a league, as league one is, is a league one player, but he is, has a ceiling of a league one. Or you can look at a player and say he's, he's, a, he's a league one player now. Maybe in eighteen months, you could see him as a championship player with certain improvements. And at Plymouth Argyle, especially who I work with closely, are a club who wants to bring players and improve them. So mm-hmm. that that is, that is part of our remit in looking at and looking at players who we can improve them and kick on. It, it is. It's mad, isn't it? Because you see people. Some people will look at players in the championship and and. He might be scoring goals, and they got to buy him. He's got loads of goals. He'd be fine for Everton or whatever, or you know, other clubs. And you know, as you go down the leagues, you're you're saying there there'll be lads in League Two who are putting the ball in the net maybe regularly, or a centre back who who looks like he's comfortable. And but then when you look and you can he actually step up? That it and in some cases people can improve. You can never stop improving. You can work, 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 but it is difficult to guess with levels as well with ceilings like you're saying isn't it some I think the ceiling will be quite obvious you can tell that although they're effective at that level would they be effective higher up we see this we I always call it the Dwight Gale the Dwight Gale scale you know is yeah. um team Upuki you know we, I we know he's an international footballer but he's very very good at championship level Premier League hey you get, again this is this is this is the this is where it comes in Timu Puki is a good Premier League striker when he plays. No. I think he's like I think just under one and two. No, no, honestly, not this is what I'm saying. this is this is the difference. Not for me, not for me. <laughs> I've seen, he's had two cracks. He's had two cracks, Harry. And he, he's not done it either time. No, no, sorry. And Dwight Gale's the same. But what you're talking about is no. But what you're talking about is someone who can who can play in the Premier League. Well, yeah, well, I can name you. Umar Nias, who played in the Premier League, but I wouldn't say... No, but I, I agree with that. But what we point out, I don't want to get into that. This, what we, what we <laughs> no, I told you, midfielders had to back the way immediately there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, this is this is a good good point, really, yeah. in, in terms of the Dwight Gale scale. Yeah, you go from, like, uh, you know, it's like, like you know, you know Timu Puki, well, mm. you know, you use other examples where they've gone from, in, as a top championship side, they've mm. been promoted into the Premier League and then they're not one of the big fish anymore and the chances yeah, yeah. come less and less. Yeah, of course. I think yeah. that's why I do back Pookie because he has taken chances when he's got them even though you know, it, it, Norwich obviously found it difficult when they played in the Premier League but I think that's another thing if you look at other players who've come up you know, Neil Malpais scored 25 for Brentford mm. 8 or 10 goals strike yeah, for, yeah. for, for Brighton obviously he's come to Everton obviously hopefully he can kick on it's just that that's the, that there's a change obviously in the fact that you're going from clubs to create multiple multiples of chances mm to clubs that are struggling to make chances because there's so many dominant big teams in the Premier League. Obviously, yeah. we've talked about leagues within leagues. You know, you play 12 games a season, which is a third of your games against monster teams with yeah. uber budgets bigger than yours. So it's about it's the ability to, to identify those players who can take chances in the limited, you know, the limited, you know, take score goals in the limited number of opportunities that they get. But no, you know, I certainly understand the, the Dwight Gale scale. Obviously, people have seen him got you know, score multiple goals at Championship level and obviously not been able to do it for Newcastle Premier League level. Yeah, and as obviously, you're, you know, you're right, of course, you're right, in terms of the playing against better centre-backs as well who, who are quicker and stronger, so that's going to cut yeah. your chances down if your team isn't creating a lot of chances. I'm just looking at the other bits around, like, say, Pukki, he's, he's not got a real turn of pace, is he physically strong enough to keep the ball? He's okay. He's, he's not too bad that way. But while I'll equate that to if Everton were going after him. But then for every team who Pukki, there's obviously Ivan Tony, who's now in the England squad. He's a player who was at, um, played in League One, didn't he? Was he? Where was he at in League? Was he yeah. Peterborough, wasn't he? And then obviously Brentford. Yeah, he's been yeah. fantastic at Brentford, and he stepped up. And, and they are they're a strong side anyway now, just from 
from their recruitment, which is that brings us nicely back to recruitments, and they've done it. A lot of people would say, or more and more people now would say, yeah, that's the way you should be doing it. And I know, Andy, listen, you've banged on about this for years. You know, we've had many a, <laughs> many a video out there of us going, and I'm sure Tim, I've seen Tim's tweets when he's trying to he's trying to throw <laughs> things in about a certain club. Absolutely, he absolutely. Does it. Yeah, he does. But it must be... It must be off Andy every time I tweet. I know, but it must be so frustrating because you're obviously within the game and can see how it works. But let's that just for now, let's stay away from from that. We can have a, a conversation off camera about our club and <laughs> and things like that. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Uh, how, does, how does a transfer market work for you then, Tim? What was Because obviously transfer windows is what? fans now have been led to believe is, is better than football. If you actually look at the excitement level <laughs> while the transfer window's open, yeah. oh, once yeah. the once the footy starts again, the levels kind of drop a little bit and it's, it'll be ramped up again, but how does a transfer window work for you? So obviously we've just had one closed. Are you, all, are you already thinking about yeah. January or how does it work? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say the players that clubs sign um, I, it would be very unusual, or it should be very unusual for them to be signing players that haven't been on the radar for them for quite a long time. Mm. So if you're talking about us with our League One clients, yeah. I imagine every single player that we end up putting forward to be signed has been extensively looked at for months before that, mm. unless they are a, a suddenly emerging talent you've got a chance of getting. Yeah. And then, yeah, you can you can blitz that player and, and find out everything you can in a short amount of time. And that's where people like Brighton have probably had luck is... Are not luck, but they've they've done well because mm. they've looked at those players and they've been really good at forecasting who's only just emerging, got them in early, and then given them like a year to develop, like Casado and Jakob Morder and people. They've 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 done that that process really well. Mm. But with us, we would we would have a we'd also always have looked at the players before well before the window. Um, it might be two or three windows before you actually end up signing that player after they've gone in the database, just because I think what people probably don't understand or really maybe they would understand it, but they don't really think about it is that you're not acting in isolation. It's not like you want a player and you can get them. It's like you want a player, five other clubs want them. You've got a list of probably like 10 players that you would consider for that position. And you work your way through the priority list. Other people are coming in. Other people are bidding for your players someone breaks up with their girlfriend and wants to move area, <laughs> all these type of things that you don't really think about mm. happen all the time. They're human beings you're dealing with at the end of the day and they can say yes or no to transfers. Mm. And uh, I, I know with some of our League One players we've signed, there's been 
six, seven, eight, nine clubs in for the same player. And then it's a question of how can you best persuade them that you've done the work, the most work on them and your system and your manager and your club is right for that player. So there's a lot of like a seduction of players, I think you'd call it, where you're you're trying to get them to join you over over the many other options they will have. And a lot of the time at League One level, that comes down mm-hmm. to geography and they'll be like, I love what you've said, but I live in Manchester and I'm not going to move to, to Plymouth or I'm not going to move yeah. to Milton Keynes. So, and the, the wages aren't that high that it's worth it for most players um, at that level. Um, you're talking a few thousand pounds a week, not yeah, not yeah. tens of thousands of pounds a week. So no. it's not bad money by any means, but it's not like uproot your family, buy a new house off your first couple of weeks wages type money. So, um, and yeah, so, so we would always say you go into it really prepared. You've got long lists of options for every position. And then it's a case of your, your director of football, being able to persuade those players to join you and your the manager at that stage would get really involved in speaking to the players and, and persuading them that, that their club is the best fit. So yeah, there's probably a lot more um yeah, a lot more kind of talking about transfers before they happen. And I, I'm pleased to say like at all the clubs we're at, it's, it's very rare it leaks who we're speaking to or or anything. If it does, it's normally the agent trying to drum up interest in their player. But within clubs Nothing really leaks out um, to the press. So quite a lot of the time you'll, you'll hear um, fans saying, well, I know we're talking to this guy. And it's like, it's either complete rubbish or it it was something that was mentioned maybe six weeks earlier and the agent is now trying to drum up interest because it's fallen yeah. through. But live transfers very rarely do, do people hear anything about. I mean, that might be different at different levels, but certainly for the frag clubs, it's been really, uh, really tight in terms of, public information so I've, I've definitely gone off transfer speculation because um even if i always say even if they had our lists and they had like 100 players on our lists we're going to cite two of those so they, they gave you 100 names 98 yeah. would be wrong even if they had our actual list of players mm. we were going to sign or we want to sign so yeah it's uh it's still a bit of fun i still enjoy it i still get annoyed by the players you get linked with and, <laughs> and uh, that type of thing but I know it's nonsense, so I'm not. I'm not as bothered as I. And just... Andy, for you, so I suppose, obviously, you're you're already will already be looking ahead to January for the for possible recruitments and stuff. And is that like Tim's just said? That is this gonna involve players you've been looking at for months rather than someone just popping up and and you know an opportunity. Yeah, there's, there's different layers to it. You know, there's you know there's new players who pop up all the time. Players who come out of academies, people who are signed in from different places like Ireland or Scotland or wherever. They probably have you know you have knowledge of, but you don't have that that contextualize that 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 knowledge of them playing in the FL. I suppose sometimes that you know when players come over from Ireland, Ireland is a league that is not mm. the same level as a league here. Uh, so you know, sometimes seeing them, you know, seeing them do well in the league, obviously that can have obviously you know add, add cost to it because obviously if they do well in the EFL, the value is more than when they do well in Ireland. But those there's different levels of players. So yes, there's often is that we are what we have been looking at players for a while. Whether they've been they were at Premier League under twenty one level, they've got a low move to League Two, they've done well there, they've shown us they can play men's football. Mm-hmm. Then it's time to come to a League One club, things of that nature. Yes, yeah, so there's usually players, you know, players who are you know were. 21st on the list, you know, mm-hmm. that's quite a lot of players, but 21st mm-hmm. on the list last season, 
depending on how they started the season, what the, the current situation is for them, they may have moved up the list. So it can happen, obviously. Players develop at different ages. You know, we talk about positional. Sometimes strikers take a little bit longer because, obviously, you know, the, the physical side of the game is, is quite tough. Or defenders who tend to develop a bit later as well because, obviously, they have to experience all, of the, all the different types of, you know, different types of environment they're going to play. And, they, and obviously, play against much more physical men as well as they come out of the youth levels. So there's different uh, there's different factors in in how we, how we end up coming to find players and recruit players but you know, certainly as Tim said you do end. it's very rare nowadays because of the access that people have that you wouldn't know a player at all um, you know if you think back to 15 years ago obviously Udinese were very famous and having thousands of DVDs from all around the world to look at players I would I would I would definitely I would probably struggle in those times that would require going to matches and being in the right place at the right time often you know to find a, yeah, Alexis yeah. Sanchez or whoever but people like Udinese signs so it'd be very difficult to find those players without the the, the mass amount of information whether it be data or video that we have now so it, it you know for January now we you know we, we build up by watching players you know in the in the current teams they're in we obviously have reports on them from the past. We have you know, we we carry five years of previous data as well to look at players' development and development curves. So it's it's just about it's just about looking at the needs of the team. We use data obviously to identify what the team's missing, whether that be, for example, you know, you know someone who can you know clear you know do well for you know defending set pieces. A lot obviously set pieces become much more. Um, concentrated on area of football, uh, you know, and, and teams who can't defend set pieces tend not to do as well uh, in leagues as you know, Everton and Leicester yeah. obviously saw last season with the issues with, with set pieces. So, yeah, it, it's just about identifying the weaknesses or the, the needs of a team and then finding players who now fit that fit that need. And that can, that can change the previous season. The player might have not been suited at all, but now because of the different roles or the involving tactics of the, of the manager, whether the manager changes, you need a different type is of player. It, is it frustrating role. when... You've identified the player, and you're leaving it like Tim just said. You're leaving it in the hands of the of the you know sporting director at the club, and you're thinking we've got him. He's he's going to be perfect for what we've picked up. And then an agent does the dirty, or an agent says, you know, I can get you another two hundred quid at this club, and and that that goes, that goes. Yeah. yeah. It is frustrating, yeah, it is. And, 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 and I'm, I'm, you know, as Tim said, I'm quite a really? freak out. Really? I, like I haven't noticed. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, my, my issue, my, I haven't, you know, I wanted, obviously, because obviously it's handing it off to other people to do it. And I don't be wrong, but, you know, people at Plymouth, you know, Preston and other people, you know, great at what they do. So I, I trust them completely. But it's just that that's the nervous part because you've done all the work that you want to do. But then again, it, it, for us as well, it's a real test of us as well because often you don't get your first choice. I'll be honest, there's, yeah. there's plenty of times where we've got, and you know, even we've ended up with a third choice, but because of the the the, the work we've done, we feel confident that third choice will still improve us. Mm. So it's about the quality of your list, really. I think you know, obviously, it's famous that Liverpool wanted to sign you know Marco Royce or Julian Brandt, and ended up with, and uh, the data on the recruitment department convinced Jürgen Klopp that actually Mo Salah was 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 the right choice, and you know, you know, history tells us that that was the right choice. So it, it you know, it's about you, Marco Royce. Go on. Yeah, <laughs> Marco Royce. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's about the depth and quality mm. of your scout and, and 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 having finding those players who fit. Obviously, it, sometimes it, it it can be one or two players, and that is the most frustrating part that you do sometimes have to look around for something maybe not as good as you you had because the the, the, the deck obviously in the FL there's not many clubs who have money or you know vast vast wage bills. So trying to find players who fit in within your budget who will also come to the club it it, it can be very difficult. There's a lot of variables involved as well. Tim, does it 
I know more and more are using it, but does it surprise you that some Premier League clubs um, haven't seen in the past to have kind of used what is, to me, is a sensible metric to see where the players fit? I mean, I can, we can talk about our own club, which seems now to be doing things in the right way. Manchester United is one for me where I look at and I just think, with all them resources, how do you still keep getting things wrong? You know, they should be better. And there'll be, there's loads of, it seems like there's quite a few other clubs who, who just don't work at the same level. So does that surprise you, given obviously your interest in data, your interest in statistics and stuff, and, and how you're applying it at lower level? Does it surprise yeah. you that? You know, you've mentioned Brighton, I've mentioned Brentford as well, mm. who seem to be two clubs with lower budgets who are doing it. Does it surprise you that others haven't when I think Liverpool certainly do it and have done well with it? I imagine yeah. Manchester City do similar, maybe. Um, so does it surprise you? Yes and no. Yes, <laughs> I think probably every club will have a really good data department in it at Premier League level. They'll have staff, they'll have all the access to the systems, they'll have built their own their own data systems, but it all comes down to the ownership and the leadership in the club. If if your owner is going to get excited because they've seen a player score a goal in the Champions League on telly and says, I want him, then that's going to overrule every bit of data analysis or any list that has been put together. Because at the end of the day, it's there. They're, they're the ones signing the cheque. They're the ones uh, deciding which players are signed. And likewise, if you get a manager who... And probably to reach a certain level, you need a certain personality. And that personality is very sure in what they're doing mm. and they will think they know players better than anyone else that fit their system. And even though you might go in there armed with your reams of statistics and video clips and, and re- scouting reports, if they've watched that player have an absolutely brilliant game um, and they've heard great things from their friends in the industry, that will all be information that is used as a, a bounce to decision. And then it comes down to how strong your, your processes are in your club. And w- that's something that we, push to a load of, of clubs now in addition to the scouting work is the kind of the processes that you need behind that to, to get the value from it um, because as I said I know that lots of the clubs you've mentioned have really good people at them uh, who produce really good work mm. but haven't necessarily had that unified direction of what do we want yeah. this football club to be playing like and uh, that we we use the word alignment too far too much but it's basically does your owner and your sporting director and your coach and your players all make sense in the way that you want, say you want to play football? Because if, if the manager doesn't agree with the other three people, then it won't work and the manager can be sacked and replaced. If the, uh, the sporting director doesn't disagree, doesn't have the same vision as the owners, he'll be sacked. But if the owner themselves doesn't know what they want, then that's probably a really dangerous situation because they'll just react passionately to, to things rather than, looking at the underlying performance, they'll, we lost 4-0 in the derby, get rid of the head coach. Well, the opposition might have a team that's cost five times as much to assemble and is a world-class team that's been built up over years. Mm. And you might be six months into a, a five-year rebuild. And that's the thing that I think we've noticed most of all. It doesn't happen overnight, like especially at Premier League level. Mm. You give a player a bad contract over five years, as soon as that that player will be with you for the full five years. You won't be able to get rid of them. Mm. That If you're not willing to pay, they're not giving you 120 grand a week's worth of value. There's no other league in the world who will take them on for 120 grand a week. No, They will They will just loan them out until the contract goes. And we've seen that a lot at some clubs mm. over the last few years. And uh, 
I'm sure Turkish airlines have made a lot of money shipping players to and from Merseyside over the last few mm. years mm. as well. But um, it's uh, it's generally the case that yeah, your own your owner determines how good your club will be. So Brentford and Brighton, very stats driven. Both the owners are professional gamblers. Basically, they they mm. run bookies or they they've made their money through through marge, fine margins and yeah. looking for those kind of little arbitrage opportunities. And I think sometimes your owners who have made money in other ways um, see it as like a trophy asset where I want to buy the best player I can get and I will keep putting money in until we're good. Mm. And that used to work. You used to be yeah. able to be a Jack Walker and go in and win the championship with Blackburn by just buying the best players. But but now the gap between an, an income of a mid, mid-table team and a top Champions League team is 200 million a year. No, no, no one can afford to bridge that gap no. by even if they, even the spree that some clubs in Everton, for example, have been on over the last 10 years. Mm. You always see Liverpool fans saying like, oh, you've spent more than us. If you ignore wages, yes. If you take wages into account, there's still half a billion pounds gap between yeah. the spending of the two clubs. Wow. You, you're not going to bridge that on your own. So you have to be clever and you have to build things up slowly. And all those, all those kind of, oh, we, we want the 27-year-old so we win now type conversations. You're better off buying the 21-year-old 20, and uh, having them for five years, Richarlison style, and selling them for, for 60 million quid and reinvesting that money again in, mm. in your next generation of, of younger players rather than just constantly buying your, your ready-made players at vast expense who, who don't really last that long, as we've seen quite a few players over the years. Uh, you know what? This is something that I'll hold my hands up and say when it's just from from my club, obviously from our club, when Everton were taken over and we bought a series of players who were kind of mid twenties, well, old, you know, coming into what what do you describe it as peak? Not quite post peak, but in peak at the time. You're thinking, oh, I understand this thinking we're we're, we're gonna jump up, but the, but I the, think that. So at first, I remember there was criticism when Everton, just using Everton as an example, when Everton brought in, um, not so much Garner, because he's still unbelievable Seven now, million. but, you know, when he was excellent, earning £7 million quid, this, this, what, and he was, you know. But other players, you know, Yannick Balassi and, and uh, Ashley Williams and these kind of players who were all that age and even a year later, mm-hmm. you are thinking, I think people were still thinking of we can get a quick run on it, but my thinking's totally, I'm probably influenced heavily by Andy as well, to be fair, is that you do have to look at it slightly differently. I think I think a lot of us, I might be wrong, but I'll use me. I can't speak for people, can I? So I'll use me. I think you still, we're, we're looking at the Chelsea stroke Manchester City era where heaven investments, got it wrong, heavily investments, that's a bit better. Heavily invested. Now we're all right. We bridged it. Manchester City were obviously the last one before they pull the ladder up with, you know, profit and sustainability and FFP. Call it what you want. They were able. Don't forget. A lot of people forget with Manchester City that we're on the second takeover. The yeah. first takeover splashed a hell of a lot of money and got hardly anyone out of it of any worth. Other than other than. <laughs> Well, Alano, yeah, and Bozinov yeah. and those. Vincent Company was the one, wasn't well, I was going to say, Vincent yeah, Company was yeah. was the one who was unbelievable. Um, the second one brought in unbelievable footballers like Aguero, David Silver, and, and took it to a next level. But City were able to jump up eight stairs, weren't they, by just going bang, 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 bang. Everton done it totally the other way. And, and, and 
because <clears> the rules have changed. And it's why I look at Newcastle now when I hear people had a, a quite a good discussion with Paul Scholes on the overlap of both how Newcastle weren't just going to be able to keep going far. He was saying they'll just keep spending 300 million a year, 400. And it's like they can't really because of the rules. So you'd have to do it differently. And Newcastle, I think, are, I think they are trying to do it a little bit differently and other clubs do, but it has changed so much. Just one thing. No, no, I think this is this is where it's become really important now. I think as you say, people, you know, looked at the Man City, the Chelsea way, and I think now you have to sort of pre plan completely. You're a new owner, new investment group, whatever it may be. You have to pre plan and strategize how you're going to spend that money because we've seen you know Aston Villa you know, spent money, they're probably up against coming up against FFP. Obviously luckily they're Jack Grealish to sell, but then you get down the line, you're going to still need a Jalen Ramsey or whoever to sell. So, and, and that's an issue because trying to maintain that as you're going up, you're going to have to lose players to keep spending. And it's high, and, and don't be wrong, you, you know, people can make good recruitment decisions year after year, but you don't, sometimes you have fallow periods. Every club has, you know, Liverpool might have one mm. coming up, you know, some say, God willing. Okay. But, no, <laughs> but, you know, no, but that's that's what happens. So the, the, the strategic planning of how to, to spend the money, is massive now. Obviously, Newcastle. You know, we'll use Newcastle as a quick example. I'll go too long on this. They obviously had a real, real time situation. The fact that they could have got relegated, so they had to probably front load a bit of that money on maybe some older players, Chris Wood, Kieran Trippier, and others. Mm-hmm. So that's circumstance. But I think if it, you know, if there are any new owners coming to Premier League, strategizing how you're going to get around the FFP situation and to become a, I will call them a, you know, a Leicester because obviously Leicester, even though we know now they're up against FFP themselves. Lessing to, to compete in a Leicester or West Ham style way where you get in your seventh, you get into Europe, or maybe like a Leicester, you know, I know they won the, the league, but that was a, a sort of different period for them, winning the FA Cup under Brendan Rodgers. That's probably the new way of competing, unfortunately. There is probably a way, and there will be some luck one day, where teams do become a Tottenham and get and break into that big big number of teams. But that initial strategization, having the right people and the right departments and the right resources in place is massive for clubs now. Unfortunately, you do have owners coming into the league now, but who, who you know, maybe, you know, who want to, you know, show that they, they their knowledge or spend the money. And I think the, I think caution's required because I think if you want to be a, a top Premier League club or a top seven or top eight club, you need to think about it heavily before you start spending. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right, and it, it can be done, but it's planning. And it's, mm. you've got to try and bridge that gap. Because like, too, yeah. Well, like what you both said, Tim said as well, the budgets between the two playing-wise, how do you how do you bridge that gap when they've got Champions League and 100 million quid to spend extra and, and all of that? So there, there, has, there has got to be other ways. Just, Tim, I want to just come back to something you did say there about when we, you're talking about management as well. Mm. How can... Is that something that you've looked at? I think I've seen... I think I've seen you put out a few times like a structure, a club structure, and talking yeah. about management. So can can your analytics, what you do at Market Insights, can that help with the recruitment of managers as well? Would you say? Yeah. So we we have we've done a few projects. Um, one with a really really big club, um, some abroad um, in in Syria and Italy. We've helped recruit, and also within the EFL a couple of times now as well. And yeah, so. We always say, like, again, look at the raw statistics of a manager, win percentage, all that type of thing. Yes, you can do that, but what's the context and what's the uh, what's the coaching style? What's the personality style? And at that alignment I mentioned earlier, who's who's going to work well with the owner? Who's going to work well with the squad they've got? So yeah, you can look at 
how coaches have set their teams up in the past. Um, you can watch the games that they've coached. Um, but I think everyone would probably agree that if you, you took Pep Guardiola and put him in charge of Oldham Athletic, it's not going to instantly transform them overnight. It's going to it's going to take several years of, uh, of, yeah, he would do a really good job, I'm sure. And he would, he would inspire the players, he would set them up, but they wouldn't be beating Manchester City just because the playing staff is completely different. So mm. um, a bit like the kind of the Dwight Gale uh, thing you had earlier, where you're coaching in the championship and you get promoted to the Premier League and say you've been a really ball dominant team in the championship. You've, you've had 70% possession, you've, uh, you've 10 chances a game. You come into the Premier League, you're not going to have that. So no. if you compare the championship season to the Premier League season, it's going to be like you're looking at two completely different teams. Mm. So what what we always say to clubs is you've got to got to consider the whole the whole circumstances, the the personality, the types of um types of coaching the, the, the guy does. And he's certainly in terms of when you're looking at a sporting director and a head coach versus a manager model, you might look at maybe David Moyes when he was at Everton was the main man by far and mm. he was in charge and he was he had full control over every aspect of that club um yeah. and then maybe when roberto came in he was more of a, a head coach and was happy to delegate some of the other stuff to other people mm. um which is in some ways is good and in some ways because as a club if you're looking at it you don't want to give full control to someone to take over and and run your whole club but then on the other hand it makes it hard when you have a personality of a coach who then blames so maybe when a more recent Everton manager would have had problems with the medical department for example and mm. uh, you see these fallouts and it just then creates a, a terrible atmosphere within the mm. club because people are pointing fingers and it's not collaborative so yeah. um, I think that's where people like Graham Potter have developed really good reputations because they've they've gone in they've said I'm the coach I will work with the director of football we'll be collaborative we'll we'll work together to get this club as good as it can be mm. I don't want full control over recruitment but I want my say on the players we recruit mm. I don't want full control over medical but I'll be part of a almost like a managing board of the club that comes together regularly and and yeah that someone like Dan Ashworth who was the Brighton is now at Newcastle is very good at kind of managing people so We've also done work recruiting sporting directors for clubs as well. So it's always like finding those people in the industry who work in the way that clubs want to work nowadays, which is far more collaborative. And they're huge. I mean, a Premier League football club can have hundreds of people working for it um, and real specialists in those departments. And the idea that one guy, uh, a manager, is also a medical expert is ridiculous when you've got um, fully qualified doctors, several doctors, several like fully qualified physios working in the medical department i don't think a manager who walks in and says no he's fit i've seen him running should be able to overrule the medical department and and vice and likewise i don't think they should be able to go into recruitment and say i really like this player he was brilliant against us and that that kind of trumps the work of done by 20 people in the department who have who've watched every single player and spent months grading them and ranking them appropriately so you need personalities who fit in with the way the club works. And some some do still want an autocratic manager who's the main man and in charge. Um, and I certainly think if you look at Liverpool, Klopp is definitely the front man. Mm. Um, Michael Edwards was a sporting director. Do you ever see or hear anything of him in the press? Never. No. He's so, so, so kind of behind the scenes. But mm. obviously what he does behind the scenes is brilliant. But he's happy for Klopp to have the limelight and be the face of the club. Mm. And so you just need people who blend together. And if Klopp was maybe less of a personality um you'd need your sporting director to be more of the leader 
at the club. But you've just got to find the right balance. So, yeah, we, we spent a lot of time looking just beyond the, the basic performance stats and into the, the personalities. Fantastic. Andy, let, just very quickly, tell me why a manager shouldn't have... Tim's just touched on it, but in your opinion, why a manager... Because if I'm a head coach and you're recommending players and I don't think... I don't think that I'm going to use them. You do get a situation. We've just seen it. We've seen it at Bournemouth, say, early on. Scott Parker was like, well, yeah, we brought people in, but we've got to spend more money if you want to survive in the Premier League or whatever. So why why shouldn't the manager have full control? And, and sorry, just two parts to it. And if they don't, can they really be blamed if the team doesn't do well? Well, that's about, again, that comes, you know, the second part of the answer first, that comes back to collaborative process. And I think for people like myself, it's about buying. And often managers have to trust people. Again, Tim talked about relationships, that mm-hmm. relationship between the recruitment department, the decision makers in the recruitment department and the coaching staff yeah. has to be good because they have to have that trust that you're, you understand their, their way of thinking, how they want to play and what type of personalities they want to bring in. So it's about getting buy-in. Don't be wrong, sometimes buy-in is quite easy because certain managers are really open. Sometimes you need success with transfers to get buy-in. So, you know, you need a player to come in and do really well. And they go, actually, data really does work for me and these guys know what they're doing. And that, that, that. So it's, sometimes it takes time. In terms of managers having total control, the, the reason I don't believe it, it, it works like that is because managers, much like players, leave. Mm. And if you build a team, now don't be wrong. I understand why Liverpool. I understand why Manchester City have built their clubs and their managers' image. They both they, they both earned it really. Mm. You know, Klopp. You know, probably took a little bit more time at Liverpool. About two, you know, about eighteen months, two seasons to get mm. going. Manchester City, if you think about it, started building for Pep in two thousand twelve when yeah, they changed yeah. the academy when Tzigi Bergerstein came in. Mm. They changed all how they worked in the academy, and eventually you produce players like Phil Foden who were ready to play in Pep's system and Cole Palmer and people like that. But no, I think that's the, the main crux of it. Really, is that you know, the, a club should not be beholden to a manager. Should they, they should be able to continue the work they're doing post the manager? And I think that's where some clubs have made the mistakes. You know, we, we obviously know one that's done that. Where it's been heavily set around the manager's decision making and keeping that manager happy, rather than the club having their own identity and, mm. and find the managers who fit in with that. You know, much like players doing. But then once they move on sacked, resigned, whatever it may be, you can bring someone else in. It may tweak things slightly. Of course, not every manager is the same. It's hard to find managers who are exactly the same. But finding someone who can continue that work and, and, and use the players that they have. You know, obviously when Pep first came to Man City, they didn't have fullbacks. We spent what two hundred million pounds on fullbacks. Yeah. Not every team's got that luxury. So identifying a manager who fits with the team and the players you've got. And obviously you're also you're, you're gonna recruit, but you're not gonna be able to recruit a whole new team, a whole new style. So it's about that fits. But no, for me, for the reasons managers shouldn't have full control is because of that. I think if you I think also managers don't have the time anymore. I think there's a lot more that goes into being a manager now than maybe under David Moyes. You know, there's probably you know obviously there's so much more information on, on hand that you know you know managers often you know look at players they've seen play against them. Yeah. Managers haven't got time to go and look at video day in and day you know day in day out and go to watch players in Europe. I know something that Moyes did at times, but it, it, it's very hard to be able to do all of that and find them the right players. So it's it's being as I say having that relationship with the recruitment department. That allows them to you know, find players they want. Don't be wrong. Managers should still have a major input in recruitment. Of course they should, yeah. because it's their team. You, as someone once said, you never sign a player that only a manager wants, but you never sign a player the manager doesn't want. Yeah. So that's an, and that's the, that's the, that's the philosophy really. But as long as everyone's happy with signing a player, then then sign that player. But it has to be within the confines of the club structure and what they, and where they're heading. 
I think, you know, in, in the past, clubs have tended to sign players who are managers' players. And then when they've left, you end up you know, sending them to Turkey, as, as, as people have said, or, you know, you're stuck with them for that five-year contract. So it's about making the right decisions overall for a club and what's in the club's best interest, not just individuals' best inter- interests. Excellent, excellent. Well, we'll see the big test now. We'll see at Brighton, won't we, where obviously Roberto Deserbi's come in and... Um... It's going to be interesting to see whether he can do well. Have they have they planned properly? They took the time over it. So, and you imagine Brighton will have done will have done their homework, and he, he had Sassuolo playing some excellent stuff. So, it'll be interesting to see what he does. Um, finally, then I'll come to you first, Tim. What do you think the future of data in football is, and and have you fe- have you seen a change in the small? Well, I say the small time, but a few years in football already. Have you seen a change? So, have you seen changes in football since you've been involved? And where do you think the future is for data within it? Yeah, there's, there's definitely been a change. I'd say pretty much every club now has access to uh, data platforms. There's there's Wisecout, there's Statsbomb, there's Opta. Um, there's there's the process data that the likes of us provide, which has got another kind of bit of processing done to it to to make it more relevant to them. Um, so everyone has access to it. I think there's definitely things like tracking data and things coming to football, which is far more than just like counting how many shots a player has had, which was the first step. Second step was where they where they took those shots from on a kind of coordinates and then working out. And that was that's been really good for finding players. Like talent identification, would call it, is really been stepped up a lot by that. And I'd say you could look at most players now anywhere in the world and you could get good data for them. Um, it's then how you use that and how you interpret mm-hmm. it. I think that's the next level. And that's where I think the gap in the market still is. It's, it's the interpretation and the, the making sure that all your processes and things line up. So you know what a good player looks like in data for your system. So not just, oh, this one's got all the, the green bars are all, all green and this one's uh, this one's looks worse. Like, I mean, a really good example of the context is uh, Alex Iwobi this season. So mm. we would look and say he's gone up a level. If you look at his basic data profiles on some systems, he looks worse. Okay. It looks like he's not anywhere near as good as he was last season. And so Andy and I were looking at the other day thinking this, this is odd because to our eyes, he's obviously gone up levels. Mm. The thing is, his role has changed. He's playing deeper. Yeah. So he's not picking up the ball as high up the pitch in his threatening areas. Mm. He's He's... Putting in, he was in a team last year that couldn't retain the ball, so yeah. his he was having to uh, have lots of opportunities to turn the ball over more more so than this season. Even though his success rate at turning over the ball this season is higher, last season he was just involved in more changes of possession, so yeah. that that made inflated the data. Um, it was more of a last season as well. It's more of a team that he was picking up the ball and driving at, at mm. players, and this time he's probably passing into the forward players. So again, his kind of Change breaks from the central areas look worse. So mm. you've got to take the data, yes, and use it, but you've got to apply the context of it. And yeah. you do that by advanced data. So we've got things that pick that up mm. that probably aren't available to the general public. But you've also then got the watching of the player. And that it was always going to be involved in the process to to do it. But um, yeah, so I'd say the availability of data is higher than ever. Um, but I still think there's very few clubs who I would say have a full kind of inform- data-informed processes within their clubs. So they they might have access to all the information but and they might do great stuff in the background with it. But when it comes to 
which player should we sign and what should we do in training this week and how do we decide whether we're doing well or not. I think that type of thing is still missing at quite a few clubs that you would expect to have that type of thinking involved. And that always comes down to ownership and it comes down to um, just making sure the long-term interests of the club are, are always the main thought of everyone involved and not just career advancement in the next year or two. Because as Andy says, managers go, sporting directors go, owners go. The only people who who are with clubs for life are the fans. Mm. So if anyone should be thinking long-term about their football clubs and demanding that things are put in place and and not worrying about, it's all about next season, it should be us. We should be the ones thinking, for better or worse, I'll be still be supporting this club in in 20 years' time, hopefully. Mm. I want us to be winning stuff over those 20 years, not just next season. So if anyone's anyone's uh, pushing for for long-term strategic thinking, it should be the fans. Whilst often it's probably the, the perception that we're the short-termists and we're the ones who want it, want everything now. But mm. I think we should we should we need to reset our thinking and be persuading our clubs that we don't we don't worry so much as long as we stay up. Yeah, by all means, take three or four years to build what you're going to build because we're still going to be here and we we want it to be as good as possible. And Andy, I'll have to leave the last word to you then. Shame for you and only, you know, what do you think the future of data and football is and what next for market insights? You can have the final say. Go on. <clears throat> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll quickly go to the future data. I think I think models become more advanced. I think there'll be a lot more you know, granular detail. I think a lot of people working on using both um, event data with physical data, I think the amalgamation of those is where it's headed. Yeah. I think basketball did a lot of this where they threw massive amounts of information at models, but they realised they probably put through two information. So I think there's going to be we'll have another 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 level. I think of going up in terms of the use of data, but I also think there'll be a step back situation as well coming in a couple of years where we will, like Tim said, the the interpretation and how we use it may change slightly as well. Yeah. So I think that that's going. I think also the of the people at clubs who are making these decisions and the people who drive the data will change. If you look at base. Ball now, I think twenty nine of the of the thirty two, you know, are non ex players. I think that will evolve in football. I think you'll get more Michael Edwards, who obviously came. I know he did play for for a certain period, but he mm. came through a pro zone, for example, which was an early analytics company and yeah. performance company. So I think that will change the people making the decisions within football. Will change mm. in terms of market insights. Well, there's, there's a lot with a lot going on really in terms of working with investment groups we've got projects we're looking to do in africa i think that's another future of, of data will be i think people will want more data from africa in africa at the moment it's africa's a bit of a black hole in terms of there's not a lot of data for the leagues i think yeah. clubs will want to invest in that and i think the, the, a company that does do that will certainly make it you know make make money because i think that's where a lot of the, the next big players are coming from is that you know these senegal's ivory coast cameroons and nigerias and you know your marley's as, as as obviously um Salzburg of seen. So I think that, that you know, I think from, for us, we're looking to expand, you know, we're obviously still looking to work with clubs in terms of recruitment, but we're also looking to work with investors and do strategic strategic planning for clubs and help them build as well. We're also looking to do other projects like our African projects. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, I think, I think to be honest, we could probably have another hour doing this and maybe we were, well, maybe we'll we could. Oh, course. God, absolutely, because... It is fascinating. I love all of this stuff. But for now, a huge thank you to uh, you, Andy, and to you, Tim, for joining me. That was really, really interesting. I loved it. And uh, like I said, I could have gone on for another hour. But thanks very much, gents, for joining me. No worries. There you go. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Really interesting. An insight there into market insight and an insight to how data is being used 
in football and, and the progression of it. So uh, check out Market Insights. Keep looking on Twitter to these two very knowledgeable gentlemen giving you lots of uh, lots of stuff around data. So check it all out. Thanks for watching. We'll see you later. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.